You're listening to Fruitless, a podcast hosted by me, Josiah Sutton. This is episode eight, Christ and the Queer Apocalypse, featuring Keanu Hedari. Welcome everybody to Fruitless. I am joined today by by Keanu here, uh, who has been wonderfully nice enough to join and uh, agree to join and talk about uh, queer theory and theology. So, why uh, why don't you introduce yourself real quick for those who don't know you? Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Keanu Hidari. I am a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Uh, my dissertation looks at uh, Iranian student activism in the second half of the 20th century in Paris, but I'm broadly interested in questions of New Testament theology, uh, critical theory, gender studies, queer theory as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which uh, that would be uh, that that'd be great to have you on another time to talk about. Yeah, the uh, Iranian activism and stuff like that at some point. But um, yeah, we, I guess we'll be moving away from your actual PhD topic here to more broadly, a lot of this queer scholarship that you've been spending some time diving into, and uh, and just asking why uh, why Christians, especially Christians of the liberation kind of bent, should care about it. So, I guess why don't you kind of introduce um, for those who aren't really very familiar with queer theory and critical queer theory, what what is it and and what is it uh, trying to do? Basically, since the sexual liberation movement that began in the 1960s across the Western world, there's been a increasing degree of specialization of focus in terms of asking questions critical about gender and sexuality. Um, we began in the during the AIDS crisis in the 70s and 80s with the gay rights movement, the gay and lesbian rights movement, and moving towards the, the 90s and, uh, and the early aughts, we have an evolution of what we can call queer theory. Um, Basically, the best way I can describe this transformation between gay rights and queer theory is to think through the transition between what can be called um, feminist standpoint theory and what we today called intersectionality. So feminist standpoint theory has been criticized for being overly essentialist. It essentially argues that, um, uh, you know, the epistemic perspective of someone who is a woman or someone who is a person of color occupies a unique standpoint from which um, no other uh, perspective can can speak to. Uh, and it's this perspective of standpoint has been criticized as being essentialist because we started to ask questions in the 80s and 90s about, well, what does it really mean to be a woman? What does it really yeah. mean to be a man? Um, and, you know, once we started asking these broader ontological questions, we got to a point where we, we began to destabilize the very assumptions that first and second wave feminism were built on. Namely, that there is something self-evidently clear uh, of what a woman is. There is something self-evidently clear of what a man is. Uh, and once we got to a point where we started questioning these fundamental assumptions, we entered the realm of what we can today call third wave feminism. So for a listener who maybe isn't familiar with, you know, and maybe maybe is kind of confused by the recent wave of, of kind of gender conversations that have, have become more mainstreamed, what what um what is the questioning behind what 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 makes it not so apparent that somebody's a woman or a man fits into that binary? So Gail Rubin, the anthropologist at the University of Michigan, has an essay uh, that I believe was their uh, bachelor's degree thesis. I could be wrong, but it, it was a an essay on the sex and gender system. 
And it basically said that there is a distinction between one's biological sex or sex that is assigned at birth and their gender, namely the, the roles of masculinity and femininity that are performed in day-to-day life. Um, in, in his oeuvre, in his works, Michel Foucault's uh, um, uh, first volume of the history of sexuality went even further than what Rubin uh, stipulated in the, this thesis on the sex and gender system, and actually argued that sex as we understand it is not some transcendental historical a priori. It's not that, it's not that people have always been having sex mm-hmm. and whatever comes after, you know, like sexuality or gender uh, is, is a product of it. He actually makes the very provocative argument that it's, it's actually the reverse. Sex is a product of sexuality. Um, uh, sex as we understand it today, not, not the act of coitus in general. But okay. sex as we understand it today as this, this, this uh, uh, behavior between two adults or what have you is actually itself a product of sexuality that comes out of the 18th century, what, what the French call the, the classical age or the classical period, which corresponds to our early modern period. Gotcha. So okay. once, we, once we get to a point where we're questioning the very foundations of the relationship between sex and gender, the historical chronology that we've had for so long begins to be destabilized as well. Mm. So yeah. if our very chronology is destabilized, meaning, well, what is the order of events? Is it that Adam and Eve were created in a garden however many thousands of years ago, and that's that that's heterosexual heteronormativity, that's how God intended it, and sucks to suck if you don't fall into that paradigm? What what this historical scholarship has done is to say no. What was going on in the minds of people who wrote Genesis down something along the lines of the second millennium BC? That that epistemology of gender is very different than our modern conceptions of gender and sexuality today. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's great that we're already kind of introducing the theological aspect to this um, here. So what uh, what does the scholarship point to uh, with, with Genesis? Like like. What what does a scholarship point to, like ha- how different those the view of sexuality or gender would have been to that, uh, you know, two thousand BC uh, context? I guess while I can't necessarily speak very coherently about the positive ontological aspects of what people believed two thousand years ago, what I can tell you is that somewhere in the eighteenth century. We have an explosion of discourse about sex. And this explosion of discourse about sex goes in, in pretty much in the face of what we traditionally tell ourselves about the history of sexuality. Mm-hmm. This is what Foucault calls the repressive hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. The this is, this is hy- the subject of the first volume, right? Of That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just for your listeners, just to recapitulate this very briefly, the repressive hypothesis is the idea that somewhere in the Victorian period, we got really stuffy about sex. Mm -hmm. And the way we can liberate ourselves is by talking more about sex. Yeah. What Foucault did is to show that we've been talking about sex incessantly for the past several hundred years. Mm -hmm. And we haven't gotten any freer as a result of it. No. If we combine these two threads, one thread that says in the 18th century, a new discourse about sex began to emerge that was concerned with the control of populations, with the healthy, normative, reproductive family. We combine that thread with another thread that says, regardless of what people in the, in the second millennium BC actually believed about gender or sex, we can be very damn sure that it has nothing to do with what we believe today about gender or sex. Mm-hmm. That it's a completely different cosmological universe. Yeah. That it's a completely different um, ground of thinking. Mm-hmm. Once we combine these two threads, the I would say the church is confronted with a very unpleasant and startling provocation. Yeah. Namely, everything we think we know about gender and sex today is historically contingent. Mm. Yeah. It's not this transcendental reality that we've dealt with for eons and eons. It, it is something that comes out of the early modern period 
And what do I mean when I say that? I guess in the late 19th century, people in Germany for the first time began to talk about homosexuality. Hmm. And it wasn't until afterwards, in the beginning of the 20th century, that we have the corresponding term heterosexuality. So the very notion that someone can have a biological or intrinsic sexual orientation arises in the late 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what does that mean to um, somebody with b- before that period who would have the desire to have sex with somebody of the same uh, sex or gender? How would they think of themselves? I think there wouldn't have been a sense of sexualized subjectivity. One wouldn't go around and define themselves in terms of their identity based on their sexual preferences. So, so how does queer theory kind of try to confront this this fact? Does it? Um, I, I know you you've spoken about how there's been a a social and an antisocial turn in queer theory. Um, how how do they kind of both try to address what uh what we ought to do in light of this um, question? I suppose if we're talking about the antisocial turn in queer theory, basically, in as simple terms as possible, people like Leo Bersani and Lauren Berlant, Michael Warner, uh, uh, Lee Edelman, they're, they're going to talk about this concept called queer negativity, which is basically the idea that queerness, in opposition to ideas like being gay or lesbian, is not something that has positive ontological content. Mm-hmm. What that means is to be queer is a fundamental, fundamentally relational category. You are queer in relation to something or someone else. The best example I can give about this is when I make the very provocative statement, someone can be gay but not be queer. Someone looks at me and, and they're, they're going to say, that's crazy. How is that possible? Well, look at someone like Pete Buttigieg. He, he has completely bought into the cis-heteropatriarchal normative conception of the reproductive family. Mm-hmm. Um, he supports American institutions of repressive state violence like the military and the police force. Mm-hmm. Um, he actively legislates in favor of those organizations and institutions, and he is an advocate of the carceral state. So he's actively utilizing his identity as a smokescreen to deflect attention from his uh definitely non-queer political positions so so queer queerness does have to identify itself with the state in some way it seems the implication or it has something to say with of being in in maybe not in opposition but some sort of negation of the state function like the way the state functions um i would say an a a opposition more than just the state an opposition to the social world as such okay an opposition to the social world that creates the conditions of possibility that cause, you know, gay and trans kids to have to leave their religious parents' home and to to, su- to suffer the effects of, of uh, mm. uh, you know, isolation and bullying and alienation from their broader communities. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so that, that would be kind of the antisocial turn where it's it's trying to identify... It's trying to see queerness as being just the uh, the category of being outside of the existing established gender hierarchy or gender structure as it exists. Right. Um, and the social term, I would assume, then is kind of the opposite, where it's trying to uh, bring queerness into that structure, be make it accepted by the structure. It 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 goes against the radical epistemic nihilism of of. Uh, some, you know, modern antisocial queer theorists in terms of rejecting slogans like, you know, um, there's a really great slogan that I like, which is queer revolution, not mere inclusion. Mm, so okay. the, I don't know if there's actually something called the social turn, but it's people who are mainline liberal thinkers in queer theory who are advocating for greater inclusion in society. Yeah. Okay. Who don't find any problem with gay and trans people serving in the military? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, th- I think I think if people listening to this are more likely to, you know, be be a, uh, a Christian that's affirming of gay relationships or whatever, they're probably be more likely to fit into that camp. Right. Um, and so, I guess why why should the church consider looking at 
it in more of this like revolutionary antisocial way. I think there's multiple layers to this conversation, right? I sure. Think, oh yeah. Um, the church has always been countercultural, mm-hmm. and I think theologians who have tried to make apologies for the church have ended up falling into the into the trap of recapitulating dominant philosophical modes of of speculation dominant modes of thinking so clement um uh and uh justin martyr and others end up creating you know an echo chamber for stoic philosophy in their writing Mm -hmm. right when they're when they're coming with this um really powerful polemic discourse against paganism or really powerful polemic discourse trying to convince the roman authorities that christianity doesn't pose a threat to the established social order right i think that these writings demonstrate the the pitfalls of of uh, of, of a certain mode of christian thinking right but in its in its inner house discourse writings that span the gamut of the 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 Pauline corpus to the apostolic fathers to um the didache even um i would say these documents are fundamentally ap- uh, um apocalyptic in nature yeah what that means is that these authors are all looking towards the imminent return of jesus christ mm-hmm. and they want to live in such a way as to create a radical community of people who oppose the existing social hierarchies and orders. Mm -hmm. And this opposition, to me, is broadly reminiscent of a lot of the commitments of queer negativity and uh, uh, the antisocial turn, because we're saying, whatever you've got going on, whatever this social order is that allows for poverty, for homelessness, for discrimination and racism and homophobia, this is not what the church stand, stands for. This is not mm. the discourse of the imminent return of Christ. Gotcha. And so I, I guess what, why, why does that, uh, that perspective feel still relevant today? Because, you know, as a lot of people will kind of um, use that, that sense of imminent return of Christ to be kind of dismissive of a lot of aspects of the New Testament, where it's like, well, at the time they thought they thought Jesus was going to be coming back in a few decades um, but now here we are 2000 years later, and it, it doesn't seem to have been the case. Um, what is the argument to still take that seriously, to still kind of, even if we don't think Jesus is coming back tomorrow, to still act as if that's the case? I think what I would say is that a non-apocalyptic Christianity is not one worth believing in. Because what we what we have going on is a system that acquiesces to dominant political hegemonies. Yeah, it's it's the sin of Constantinianism, right? Hmm. It's it's acquiescing to the dominant repressive state apparatus and ideological state apparatus. It's saying, let's get in bed with the powers that be and become a tool for oppression. Mm-hmm. The church needs to be militantly on the vanguard of new forms of cultural expression, new forms of bridge building that bring together saints and sinners in a way that is a revolutionary paradigm for the world to imitate. And the only way we can do that is by this apocalyptic tendency, this this belief that the return of God to actualize the new heavens and the new earth uh, will inspire a form of of vigilance. That without this, there's no motivation for the church to remain vigilant. Sure. You know, if we're taking on kind of the queer theory, theoretical lens or whatever, we we want to abolish or, you know, fight against existing uh, discourses about um, about sexuality and gender and what those mean. Um, I, I think that in practice, of course, I don't think most people would want kind of a, I don't know, sexual free for all or anything. What What is the kind of is there a norm, a, a norm like norms, a normative system and ethic or something that would be more in line with a christian view of with kind of your view of of sexuality or gender i i think of like 
the few attempts I've read at that, and I, you know, I haven't read a lot of this scholarship, would be like um, Just Love by Margaret Farley, right? Where it was an attempt at trying to cook down kind of a like Catholic uh, theology that's inclusive of, of queer people or, um, you know, different different forms of sexuality. However, that that seems more in line with kind of the social approach to queer theory you're talking about and not as much this apocalyptic and revolutionary approach. So I, I guess what what would be... Um, a revolutionary sex ethic? This is a question I've struggled with quite a bit. I think in my readings, people uh, like Eugene Rogers in Sexuality and the Christian Body and uh, Douglas Campbell in his recent Pauline Dogmatics will, will, will stay within a broadly traditional hermeneutic and will say that... Let me put my cards on the table for you. Um, Campbell is an advocate of what we might call a supralapsarian theory of 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 uh, of one could say justification or soteriology and i'll explain what that is in a moment uh it's it's at odds with with the more traditional view which we would call infralapsarian so okay. the infralapsarian position is one that you're very familiar with it's god had a plan a we screwed up, <laughs> so Jesus comes as our plan B. Yeah, yeah, okay. This is the this is the traditional creation, fall, uh, redemption, restoration narrative that we hear a lot in reform circles, right? Mm -hmm. Campbell re re repudiates this wholeheartedly and says that this is not a Christocentric worldview. No. Instead, he advocates the supralapsarian view, which is another way of saying incarnation anyway which is God has had a plan A from the beginning. Yeah. And the plan A has always been Jesus Christ with us, for us, by us, from, 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 from time immemorial to, to the present moment to, to eternity. Mm. And sin and death are cosmic forces which enter the universe and derail plan A. Jesus comes to put us back on the original plan. Okay. Someone might say, this seems like an academic disti distinction. And I'll say it's not. It's not because a supralapsarian Christology, a supralapsarian doctrine of salvation, ultimately says, Christ is the vantage point from which we have to think about all of scripture, from mm -hmm. which we have to think about all questions of sexual ethics about gender. And it's not about going back to some kind of primordial doctrine of creation about the originary states of Adam and Eve. It's about what does Christ do in inaugurating a new creation? Now, here's the problem. Paul is a sticky figure because he doesn't always stick to this superlapsarian logic. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he switches to an infralapsarian mode of argument. And this can be found in various places where he articulates the household codes where he talks about, you know, women having to veil themselves going to mass, or, um, you know, uh, he uses the logic of wives be submissive to your husbands and husbands rule over your wives like Christ is the head of the church. The, the, the interesting thing about a superlapsarian reading of passages like that is that someone like Campbell will use Paul against himself. Mm -hmm. So Paul is said to be insufficiently Pauline in those passages. Oh, interesting. Okay. And this goes to a very old uh, German form of criticism called Sachkritik, or subject criticism, um, which is basically saying, what was the intention of the gospel message in this passage? Hmm. And so once we, once we get all this technical jargon on the table, we can start to see that our commitment is for an emancipatory and liberatory reading of Paul. Okay, yeah. So if that's the case, we can then start to think about ways of staying within a theological reading of Paul that is, that is as faithful to the text as we can get without recycling and reduplicating heteropatriarchy, forms of oppression, forms of you know, slavery even, which mm -hmm. is discussed yeah. in the New Testament context, right? Getting away from all of these and, and seeing how an egalitarian Paul, a progressive Paul, is a very possible hermeneutic option. Yeah. And so, bottom line, 
people like Campbell and Rogers are going to say something to the effect of sexual promiscuity is not necessarily something that we can weasel our way out of in the New Testament context. Mm -hmm. We can't really make a concrete case for things like polyamory. Um, right, right. What we can do is say that marriage is expansive enough to include same-sex couples or transgender couples. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I struggle with that because I don't know if this is an excessively confessionalist reading of, of the New Testament that confines me to certain kind of limits of thinking that are not as inclusive as they could be. Mm-hmm. But this is where I'm at at this point. Uh, I'm. This is the kind of pe- these are the kinds of people I'm reading. People like Rogers and Campbell who open up the door to see that the form is separate from the content. That there is no good superlapsarian reason to prevent same-sex couples from getting married. Right. Absolutely. No, that's a that's a great argument. Um, so, but yeah, there there does appear to be kind of a tension there between that attempt to deontologize, you know. Uh, deontologize uh gender or sexuality and still kind of um you know that that kind of creedal approach uh how do you think that this kind of tension would play out in in the church you know you and i are both in the main line um i think that would be probably most likely where this discourse would happen because i don't see the catholic church even getting to just the inclusive stuff anytime soon (laughs) um yeah how, how would this how would this play out if mainline pastors were to try to take this seriously i think part of it part of it is going to be a the need to reckon with politically useful politically pragmatic discourses so why do transgender people have to say that they were born a certain way Mm. they have to say that uh that they were born a certain way because the medical juridico medical establishment requires a performance of gender to receive adequate medical care. Yeah. They require a performance of the gender to which you actually feel yourself conforming to through these stylized forms of masculinity and femininity to receive adequate care to treat dysphoria. Yeah. Gay people have historically used the argument that they were born with a particular sexual orientation, not because that argument has any analytic weight to it, but because it's been the tool to achieve liberation in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. Because using the arguments and the logics that we have, if someone is born a certain way, there is no moral culpability for them if they Mm. choose to act on how they were born. Yeah. When in reality, thinkers as diverse as Foucault and Freud have proposed various explanations to how we, you know, how we get to where we are that don't rely on these essentialist biological paradigms of sexuality mm. and gender sure well and, and i know the fear um we're talking about like political pragmatism here the fear is that if you if you take this freudian lens um or Foucaultian lens and say uh homosexuality is a product of discourse it's a product of certain social forces then you know the the conservative reactionary kind of approach to that would be well then let's get rid of the social forces that produce gay people um, and so the fear was like, the fear is that, or like, um, I, I know, I, I believe a lot of conservatives will use almost Freudian logic to say like homosexuality is the result of being abused as a child or something like that. Um, I, why, I, how should, what, what's the argument to still push for making this a socially constructed or, or, or looking at this in a socially constructed way? Um, if the essentialist perspective seems to have been more politically pragmatic. I think one is a concern for truth. Yeah. Um, if we're if we're advocating for these socially uh, the non socially constructed positions and these essentialized arguments, what we're doing is confining people to grids of intelligibility that are mm. inherently uh, oppressive. Yeah. Once you confine someone to an identitarian category, you basically require a performance of coming out. This is what Eve Sedgwick mm. talks about in the epistemology of the closet, that there is a there's a certain kind of jouissance, a certain kind of sick pleasure that heteronormative institutions and societies get from forcing queer people to come out of a closet through some kind of barbaric, you know, um, ritualistic performance of of almost like um, 
Con- you know, beating one's chest and saying, "I'm different. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a spectacle yeah, to be yeah. beholden." Um, hmm. So once we once we begin to see how f- truly fragmented our epistemological scene is, I think we'll come to softer conclusions. Namely, hmm. we'll be more open to we'll be more open to to not being obsessed with the question of origins. Mm-hmm. But being more concerned with the question of how discourse and language shapes our experience of one another and of the social world. Yeah. Uh, one of my professors, um, uh, David Halperin, who is at Michigan, uh, gave this wonderful example, which is, I-, I assume, Josiah, you're not a vegetarian, right? No. Do you prefer white meat chicken or dark meat chicken? Dark meat. Okay. You're a dark meatist. At this point, from this point forward, I'm going to define your entire identity on the basis of your arbitrary preference for a certain kind of meat. Not only am I going to do that, it's actually a secret about you. It's a Mm. secret that reveals some inner complex of trauma and abuse that you went through as a child. It reveals reveals some kind of secret narrative that (laughs) unlocks the key to making sense out of your entire childhood. You see sure. how ridiculous this argument is. Yeah, and, and and I would, you know, if I were to take on, I'm, as a dark meatist, take on that, then, like, there are times that I do enjoy white meat or something like that. And I would almost feel bizarre at that because I'm stepping out of this taxonomy that's kind of been applied to me. Sure. So he, I think it's crucial for your listeners to hear what I'm not saying. Okay. I'm not saying that the preference for white meat or dark meat is fake. Right. The preference is clearly there. Mm-hmm. I'm saying it's socially meaningless. Yeah. It is heteronormative society that gives um, the social context of meaning to one's arbitrary preference. Right, the right. preference okay. doesn't say anything about who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. It's a void. It's a negativity. It's, mm. it's an arbitrary um, accident that you happen to prefer one kind of meat over another kind of meat. Yeah. Okay, no, that's that's really good. Moving back to the kind of theological side to this, um, I, I know that you, from conversations we've had, you, you have a preference for like uh, Calvin, for instance. Um, theologically, you, you like Calvin, and um, I know Cal- Calvin works a lot with with Augustine, and both both kind of play with some interesting ideas of like desire and um, you know the the phrase disordered desire kind of comes out of an Augustinian perspective right of you know that that there are desires put in us by god but they can be disordered they can be pushed toward you know out of the realm of virtue and into whatever um however that that seems to be kind of in conflict with the idea of social construction with this so so i guess how do you how do you navigate that so miguel de bestegui and other thinkers have talked about the the forms of sovereign power and um the creation of subjects and subjectivities who become desiring beings. And this is what I've, if, if I die, the one thing I want people to remember from my life is that we have to gradually remove transcendental historical a priori. What does that okay. mean? It means we have to gradually think and gradually step away from things we assume to transcend our historical moment. Okay. Desire, feeling, even food has a history. Everything has a history. Nothing transcends its historical context. We have not always been desiring subjects. For example, Hmm. in uh, volumes two and three, and to some extent volume four of the history of sexuality talks about this, where the Stoic thinker, to some extent even the the pre-Socratic and pre-Stoic thinkers were concerned with what Foucault calls Epimiliahuetu, which is Greek for care of the self. It's a broadly different way of thinking where the individual is not this divinely ordained subject that has a connection to a logos who is given a set of desires that have to be controlled by use of autonomous reason. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. they get out of hand, right? Yeah. The, the Greco-Roman perspective was, in front of you, you have a smorgasbord of worldly delights and pleasures. Mm-hmm. And you have to use your, your sensibilities, your, your cognitive faculties, to discipline the different ways you can enjoy pleasure. Mm. 
And this model of a human being who is cultivating different pleasures, cultivating different ways of enjoying the world, mm -hmm. is broadly different from the later Stoic mentality um, and uh, the first and second century Christian discourse of this autonomous being who is under assault by irrational desires that have yeah. to be tamed. Mm -hmm. So if, if the narrative changes in such a short span of time until we get to the Cartesian res cogito, where mm -hmm. you have uh, the beginnings of a divorce between mankind and God, where now it's a man is under this autonomous control of desires that are external or internal or what have you, and these need to be controlled by discipline, right? That this discourse ultimately shows us that this is malleable. This is contingent. Mm. That desire is not something that's that's transparent to us. Yeah. Um, going off of uh, what you said about trying to see their no see not see any transcendent historical entities. Um, I, I mean, there's kind of an obvious question to ask there, which is how how do you still um, hold that view with with belief in God or belief in Christianity broadly? Um, because you know that seems to imply a something that does transcend history and influence itself in history. This is where I bring in folks like Karl Barth, who would say that he would, in, in volume one of the church dogmatics, he thinks in very geometric terms. Mm. And we think of the world as a circle mm -hmm. and God's self-disclosure to humankind as a tangent line, mm -hmm. a tangent line on that circle. This, that's the, the heart of apocalypticism, that God intervenes in history. It's not this panentheistic schema where God, um, you know, is diffuse throughout all of creation and God interpenetrates the world and the world inter interpenetrates God. It's very much in opposition to the thinking of people like David Bentley Hart and mm. people who are broadly Neoplatonic in thinking. It's also in opposition to the thought of people like Volpart Pannenberg, right? This Bartian conception of the world is ultimately one of a, a world in crisis, a world trapped in its sin, in its estrangement from God, its alienation from God, who desperately seeks redemption and renewal, only to find that God comes to earth in the most unlikely place, in the most unlikely way, in mm -hmm. a know-nothing, irrelevant part of the world, um, yeah. and shows himself to be uh, the fulfillment of all our longings and desires. It's this God who radically and apocalyptically intervenes in space and time, who shows himself to be God for us, apart from whom we would have no knowledge or conception of God. So this is the broadly radical epistemic claim that's being made by Bart, um, which is that without Christ, the Christian story would not make sense. It sounds like a duh, like an obvious point. but No, but it, it's, yeah, no, it is a powerful thing that Bart pulls out here. Yeah. Um, no, that's 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 a great answer because, you know, God, God through Christ has entered history. And so therefore, yeah, it is transcendent, but also eminent. He, he does enter the, the discourse um, in a sense. Um, so, no, that's a that's a great, great answer to that. Um, oh, fuck. There's something else I was going to ask. Oh, I, I guess I guess I guess I'm still still trying to wrap my head around what kind of a normative. Uh, ethic of sexuality would that would come out of a lot of this here but i i know you're saying you're still you're torn on that question as well so i i don't know if there's quite an easy answer to it um but i i guess what does uh what does christ have to say for sexuality maybe is a good question to kind of move us into that conversation because i think we're accepting a kind of christocentric approach here i think ultimately bart's main contribution to systematic theology, people normally think, oh, it's his doctrine of election, mm. which is in Christ, everyone, all of humanity is federally represented in Christ as the elected one, but Christ himself is the reprobated one who receives the punishment from the Father. Mm -hmm. There's another dimension of Bart's thought that people rarely invoke, which is the doctrine of command, that mm. through the covenant, God wants us to imitate Christ by analogy which is another way of saying that we 
in, in contradistinction to orthodox doctrines of theosis, which Bart uh, very clearly rejects, he maintains a very sharp creator-creature distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we must become imitators of Christ. I think one of the, one of the difficult realities of, of apocalypticism is the recognition that Paul evidently believes that the state of celibacy is superior to the state of marriage. Yes. I don't think we can easily jettison that doctrine. Um, no. I think we have to maintain it, maintain a place for it to say that your life will be more conformed to the ascetical death to the self mm-hmm. by being chased your entire life. This is not something that we do. Celibacy is a gift that God gives to some people. Mm-hmm. And I would say that Keeping that in mind, given then that most people don't have the gift of celibacy, I think a normative ethics would, would create room for dialogue between more radical progressive Christians who do find things like um, sex outside of marriage and polyamory to be, to be acceptable in light of the gospel, and those who, while still being affirming, um, don't think that. Mm-hmm. I think there has to be room for dialogue between those two groups. And it's funny to me that we're having this conversation because it's so niche. Like we're oh, talking yeah. about we're talking about like the the group of the the circle of affirming Christians and the circle of even more radical affirming Christians like <laughs> we're not talking about um the vast majority of people who mm-hmm. you know want to stone queer people to death. Um <laughs> Actually, that that was a question I was going to ask earlier, and and this might be a time to mention it. Is also what do we do in the light of like, as we're seeing right now with the with the Roe v. Wade decision, as we see with the trans legislation, like you know, pulling this into our historical context now, the the direction of history seems to be a currently a reaction against queerness and against um, you know uh, bodily autonomy, whatever. Um, what. So, so I, I think still fitting with the kind of the question of, of a Christological uh, normative sex ethic to make it broader and not just in our insular little world here. You know, what, what, is our, what, is, what is our ethic? What are we called to do? What is an apocalyptic image of, of what we're supposed to do? So both for how we think about our own desires and our own or, you know, sexuality, but then also how, how do we fight for, you know, the, against the, such repressive systems or whatever within the church? I think this is where we need to bring in the imminent critique of people like Lee Edelman, where we have a critique of what he calls reproductive futurity, mm-hmm. which is the notion that the future tense is the primary mode of articulation of our present temporality. Well, what does all that jargon mm-hmm. mean? Yeah, yeah. Comes up with the idea of the figural child. Mm-hmm. And what is the figural child except this image? of of a child that has to be appealed to in every sort of political discourse. And the funny thing is that the discourse appears to be extra political. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, funnily enough, in the 90s, pro-choice advocates appealed to the quality of life of future children to justify abortion practices mm. which i think you know is is uh, darkly humorous to me yeah. um, um this argument comes up in books like freakonomics and super freakonomics which basically talk about yeah i remember those yeah how you remember how we need to uh, have abortion to increase quality of life for future generations to me this is a really shitty argument for pro-choice oh, it, 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 it's eugenics i mean the the freakonomics yeah. one is is pretty distinctly that i i recall because it's like oh places that have legalized abortion have lower crime rates within a few decades it's oh man (laughs) terrible Terrible, Um, yeah i think we have to you know i'm not going to go on the trajectory of giving a logic for why i support the pro-choice position i think that's another episode altogether um but i think uh getting to a place where we recognize the autonomy of an individual person as its own thing in and of itself Mm -hmm and not appealing to this imaginary child, this spectral image, which mm. is used 
by the right wing to justify stripping away human rights protections against queer people and people of color. This this actually ties really well into um, it hasn't been released yet, but the the episode that's going to come right before this one, um, we, we talk about the culture war. And one of the final statements that my guest makes is that uh, n- neither side of the political aisle actually seems to lo- like actually care about children in, in current American politics, because among a lot of uh, bourgeois liberal or even a lot of more like radical family abolitionist stuff, there's a really anti-natalist viewpoint that kind of floats around you know calling you know women who have children breeders and stuff like that as you have like then in like the you know the right wing there is what you're kind of talking about this this appeal to this ideal child however in practice you talk about like the the anti-trans legislation that's going on right now what is that if not criminalizing children in schools who decide to not conform you know, going after parents who choose to affirm their child in new identities. You know, it, it is deeply anti-family, but we've allowed the right to take on a lot of those talking points in a way that is, is really troubling. Um, but yeah, so almost like an abolition of this idealized child. And I mean, to be a bit of a Marxist, almost uh, almost a concern for actual children as they, <laughs> they currently exist. I think once we once we begin to disestablish the social conditions of heteronormativity, that will be part of a broader anti-capitalist struggle, um, which, in my opinion, is part of the responsibility of the church. Yes. Um, The church needs to fight an intersectional struggle, not only against the forces of racism and, uh, uh, and homophobia and transphobia, but also against capital as well. Mm-hmm. And this is a intersectional struggle, I think, that mm. that needs to be actualized and through coalition building, through activism. And, you know, I'm going to even though I don't necessarily have very much optimism in the present moment through legislation. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the current milieu that we're living in really harkens back to a kind of politicized nostalgia. Mm. Lauren Berlant. My, one of my favorite theorists who passed away recently wrote a book called Cruel Optimism. And in the book, she argues that a cruel optimism is a, a set or a constellation of affects which a certain person believes will bring them salvation, but in actuality ends up killing the person. Mm. And someone says, what's an example of a cruel optimism? The American dream is a cruel optimism. Yeah. We think that by having two jobs and doing the whole Sigma grind set and side hustling and <laughs> all this thing yeah. will will have a state that ends up giving us social welfare in our old age. Social security is crumbling. Yeah. The likelihood of us of our generation having meaningful social security is dwindling by the day. Mm-hmm while we're spending trillions of dollars on massacring brown people in countries that nobody even knows exists, right. um, it's, it's not a good situation. And ultimately, um, what we're seeing now is a politics of disidentification. And this is the term that Jose Esteban Munoz uses in Cruising Utopias, which is basically, a, and the way I'm reappropriating the word is enough to say that it's easier to believe in these nostalgic fictions of a 1950s white supremacist racial past where people lived in these suburbs and exurbs where um you know mm-hmm. everyone has a nice house t- two bedrooms nice car 2.5 kids and a golden retriever right <laughs> this this image is so burned into the american psyche that we pursue it relentlessly at the expense of our own health and well-being mm. and it's not coming it's not going to be there it's a cruel optimism mm. Um, and it's a national, it's almost psychoanalytic, really. It's a libidinal investment of faith in this system. And so you Mm. ask me, how do we make sense out of these reactionary legislations? I think part of it is a disidentification with the material conditions of our moment. Mm -hmm. It's not being able to process the reality of exploitation, of post-colonialism, of global flows of capital and instead retreating to certain constellations of ideology that provide a sense of comfort. So the American dream, 
conspiracy theories, um, mm. various narratives of uh, Gnostic religion that say, uh, you know, the left behind kind of stories mm, of yeah, rapture yeah. theology, right? I think all of these things are connected into a broader network of ideology that helps people deal and cope with the broadly incoherent streams of neoliberal late capitalism, mm -hmm. uh, as Frederick Jameson would call it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and, and you mentioned Jameson. I, I was thinking here also of like Mark Fisher, um, just like kind of an inability to imagine a future and kind of retreating backward into um, past images. And you, you see this on aspects of the left as well, where you kind of like romanticize the USSR in certain aspects or something like that, rather than being you know, able to imagine something, something new, you know, moving towards something imaginative. So, so there's an aspect of this that like, we need a form of cultural imagination. And it's disappointing that the church, which in theory, with its, you know, tradition of prophetic imagination to kind of reference Ruggeman there, like it isn't taking on that role. And, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, these things are all tied together. We talk about queerness, we talk about capitalism, resisting all of those things goes together in an intersectional sense. And the mainline church, um, speaking of our home here, is is interested in the inclusion of queer people to an extent, um, which is great. But it is definitely not interested in challenging capitalism, or not many. And you know, not, <laughs> and I don't, yeah, and I don't mean to don't mean to attack my co-religionists too much here, but it's definitely not <laughs> not not at the forefront of concern, especially as the the Episcopal Church is kind of run like a giant nonprofit in just how it's structured. What do you what do you think the average Episcopalian, average mainliner should should be doing within their church? If there's anything they can do to, I guess, push the church toward this imaginative, anti-capitalist, prophetic role. One of my friends on Twitter who uh, goes by the handle Henry Wallace. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, fr friend of the show. <laughs> uh, really brought me uh, to avoid this kind of existential nihilism, existential pessimism mm. who... You know this perspective that you get with Emil Chiron and and Pessoa, which I really you know find a home in as a you know aspiring French intellectual. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do we do? What do we do when we don't want to be in the heights of despair? Mm -hmm. I think the the ideology of the Situationist International and twentieth century French um, political mm. activism has really been an inspiration to me. Uh, the, okay, the theories yeah. of Tikkun and um, you know the cybernetic uh what is it the cybernetic hypothesis or the uh you know mm -hmm. the, the 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 civil war introduction to civil war and all this kind of stuff uh, uh, uh basically we can't dismantle capitalism in the way that Slavoj Žižek wants it to happen okay there's not going to be a vanguard party there's not going to be uh, this jacobin style social democrat what have you forms of capital are too diffuse institutions are falling apart um society is crumbling debord already in the 60s talked about the society of the spectacle yeah baudrillard very prophetic yeah <laughs> tell me about it baudrillard has been i baudrillard passed away but um was uh, talking about you know fragments and fractals he talks about fractal strategies right i think coalition building and community building by the church for the church and for the world is the future. What does that look like? I think people who have the discretionary spending, people who have the money to live cooperatively should do mm -hmm. it. What yeah. that means is doing <clears throat> living life uh, in accordance as much as possible with the book of Acts. Mm. Um, Multi-generational multi homes, uh, communal infrastructure, um, running for local office to gain influence. Um, these are all wow. positions yeah. that have been clearly articulated by Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto Leclau. Um, basically, working at the local level to make sure that when catastrophe strikes, people who are unhoused in your area have a place to go. This is um, I, really on topic with a lot of conversations I've had on the show. And so it's kind of amazing you've, you've 
are repeating the same thing I a few episodes back had on a friend of mine who's an anarchist organizer here in Des Moines. This is exactly what he was saying as well, even though he, he's not a religious person, but um, he's thinking about he's taking for taking it as a given that there will be crisis in the next couple decades because of because of the ecological situation because of you know, the contradictions of capital, whatever, what have you. And it's more about we got to start building communities now that will withstand the collapse. And um, I was going to say he's a very different thinker than the ones you're pulling up. But I I, all, I thought of Alistair McIntyre pretty immediately there as well. You know, the the now cliched line of uh, we're waiting on a, a, a doubtless very different St. Benedict, right? The, the building of communities and in his case he's talking about religious communities but they don't necessarily have to be um although i think that spiritual transcendent aspect is important you know essentially yeah taking it as a given this thing's about to cave in and that we can try to build a better world on the ashes of the old it's that prophetic voice of the church that's coming in to give us a motivation to work towards social and ecological justice Mm -hmm. um people a lot of my friends on the left ask me, why do you, why do you insist on this religious framework? Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason is, and again, this is a really shitty argument, and I don't expect anyone <laughs> to be convinced by it. It's a personal uh, it, one. It's a personal argument. It's just that I don't have any inspiration otherwise. Mm-hmm. That if I, if, if I don't have this apocalyptic prophetic voice in my head that says a new order has dawned, and a new order is dawning. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stick with Emil Chiron and Pessoa. Yeah, I'm going to stay and yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No good. No good. I was going to say I was going to relish on the heights of despair. I'm going to relish in my own excrement. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there is a a craving for the transcendent that's really necessary. I think to any sort of political struggle, and I, you know, I, I would say. Like I was moving back toward Christianity for a while, but really one of the things that that spiked my real return was actually the the 2020 protests here, uh, the the Black Lives Matter ones. Uh, there was something incredibly religious to me about that experience, being you know being in a community of people resisting the state, and I I think that that that's not maybe the case for everybody, but there's a sense of hope that like. I think it's kind of interesting. I understand why Fisher never got into religion too much with his writing, but I, I'd love to put like uh, Walter Brueggemann and him in conversation um, because, you know, near, near the end of his life, Fisher was going toward like, like psychedelics and stuff like that as a form of a concept of the transcendent or the imagination or whatever, as you know, several decades earlier, Brueggemann was writing the prophetic imagination. He was writing about, you know, religion as this source of, taking these maybe old images or discourses and renewing them and using them to imagine something forward. Um, so yeah, I, I think of that religious aspect. I, I've been on a kick of watching uh, a lot of like late Soviet film, just starting from binging some like Tarkovsky movies, but moving out. And there's a real theme of the collapse of the Soviet Union and this craving for this transcendent other that um, feels really in line with now, at least how I feel now, you know, because a lot of the last the last couple Tarkovsky movies, um, think of Stalker, Nostalgia and The Sacrifice are all these films of a very desolate and stagnant world and this craving toward almost an irrational, you know, irrational act of faith. And, um, oh, the Polish film uh, Obioba, The End of Civilization similarly ends where it's it's very clearly the end of the world nuclear holocaust and yet there's the seeming belief in a myth that they even invented um that still somehow transcends reality even though they know that they lied and made it up and i even uh, even come and see i i would argue has a transcendent ending because as he uh, as he shoots this portrait of hitler it starts to reverse history you see like these these reversed there's a belief that somehow all the crimes of pa- of the past can be undone and to me nothing nothing points to a christocentric worldview than that this belief that somehow all the sins of history can still be rectified and so yeah i, I think it's it's th- this transcendent thing really feels my leftism 
Um, and I, I think, I think that even if I don't think everybody's going to become a Christian on the left and I don't expect that to happen or necessarily want that to happen. I, I do think you need to have that, that feeling of transcendence or because it, it guides this. Yeah. One of the, one of the, uh, not frequently commented upon, um, dimensions of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's thought is mm. the redemption of memory itself. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the, you mentioned, uh, Stalker, the, the, the 1979, uh, Tarkovsky film. And I thought about the idea of the zone where, um, you, uh, um, you it it shows you what you desire right mm -hmm. um uh, and i think that there there is something terrifying about being shown what we what we don't know that we desire and i think in the redemption of our memories we won't have that fear anymore mm. that the desires that we think we have which keep us up at night will be redeemed in the in the in the second parousia of jesus um and that's yeah, one of my yeah. transcendental motivating beliefs yeah i guess um so so this this conversation we're having here at now kind of broadly about kind of an apocalyptic politics um I, I i know how we got here from queer theory but i think it would be interesting to try to tie them back together uh before we kind of wrap up and so, you know, how does how does this this battle against queer theory or whatever fit in with this apocalyptic vision in this imagining a new world? Fundamentally, what I think it's doing is saying that the the realm of sociality, the very order of of being that we understand today is rotten. It's rotten to the core. It it replicates and reduplicates systems of oppression, alienation, and estrangement that are bad not only for queer people, yeah, but for people who identify with normative sexualities and genders as well. I think it creates expectations of performance that make people miserable. I think a Christianity that is truly liberating can take not only the insights of, of queer theory, but the insights of Foucault as well, and these historicist insights, by dismantling these transcendental historical a prioris and ultimately viewing our historical situation today as ultimately contingent and based on a series of factors that are largely out of our control and are largely rooted in questions of an economization of the libidinal economy, where we are we become slaves to capital, we become commodities, and this exchange of this exchange of roles between an authentic, organic solidarity is exchanged, as Debord says, for a commodity fetishism, uh, this kind of circulation of of media signs. Hmm. We, we live in this simulated reality that Baudrillard says is a simulacrum and. I think returning to organic solidarity, organic sociality, to avoid becoming fascism needs to be <laughs> yeah. needs to be rooted in an intersectional struggle for the oppressed, for the marginalized. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we do that. Oh, sorry. No, you're good. Thought I had turned off. Do not disturb. <laughs> um, sorry. No good. The way we do that is by this kind of local grassroots struggle. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm thinking of uh, the the David Graeber quote that um, the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it's something we make and could just as easily make differently. And so in, in a way, you're saying that that mentality lines up with a Christian vision is that, yeah, we can the world can be something other than what it currently is. It's not a given. Um, and that's that's what the apocalyptic vision of christianity suggests um well i i think that that does a good job of kind of wrapping up this conversation here so i don't know is there anything else you would like to say nope great um, thank well, you so much for having me yeah thank you thank you for coming on this has been a, a fantastic conversation 
Um, I guess before we head out, where can people follow you on social media? Is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to plug? Uh, I have a new podcast called Explain Things to Me, which you can find on uh, on my Twitter at woe to Charizen. Okay, and I'll have I'll have a, a link to both of those, your Twitter and that, in the description for everybody. Um, and yeah, thank you, uh, thank you everybody for listening.